are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 36, Mooting as Practice. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. My conversation with Peter Webster and Christine Davis of the Carlton Fields Law Firm in Tallahassee is coming up next. So, Peter Webster and Christine Davis, thank you for joining me on the Issues on Appeal podcast. I I will have linked to your bios in the show notes, but both of you are appellate lawyers at Carlton Fields and the Tallahassee office. And Peter, I have a hard time not calling you judge because I remember your long service on the first DCA. And I can't believe I, I think you've been off the bench since 2011. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I, it, it it doesn't seem like that long to me. Does it to you? <laughs> um, it it time passes more and more quickly. The older one gets, I've found. So uh, it it still seems like yesterday to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, me too. Of course, I'm getting older too. I, and and Chrissy, you're a shareholder at Carlton Fields, and you're a board certified uh, pellet specialist, and and do all sorts of things uh, in the Florida bar. So uh, thanks for thanks to both of you for agreeing to be on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. So I wanted to have you both on uh, the show because I wanted to talk about this idea of uh, using mock oral arguments to prepare for oral argument. And I know that you both feel strongly about this as a, as a practice tool and, it's not a new concept, of course, but I think it's something we're talking about because maybe it's something that's over underused and maybe lawyers see mooting as something that that's only done by big firms or for big cases. And I think that that's uh, probably not true uh, and maybe even has some additional significance now with the, you know, the worldwide pandemic that we're in sort of the methods and procedures for doing oral arguments have changed quite a bit with remote oral arguments. So maybe even lawyers who feel pretty comfortable doing oral argument uh, in the before times uh, wouldn't mind some practice doing uh, newfangled oral arguments. So it's probably a timely uh, topic. But I'd like for you guys to talk a little bit about what what is the purpose behind doing a moot and, and why do you think it's important? Well, um, I think in a nutshell, the purpose behind doing moots is, um, as the old adage goes, practice makes perfect. Um, and and when, when you're doing an oral argument, um, even in today's world where it's going to be done in all likelihood either by Zoom or by telephone, if you're in the 11th Circuit, um, you still only have one chance. You can't. You don't get do-overs at oral argument, uh, and so I think it, it, it's important um, to 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 practice your argument ahead of time um, in front of good lawyers uh, for lots of reasons. One is um, you become more comfortable with your arguments. Um, your arguments become more polished. Uh, they become more succinct, I think. Uh, and, and 
probably most important is you get a great opportunity to deal with the difficult questions. Um, my experience has been that you almost always get more difficult questions uh, during the moots than you do at the actual oral argument. So it, it really helped to prepare you for the real argument in a number of ways. Yeah, and I think that one of the things about mood is it's not only preparing, it's not only you know, practicing the skills of delivering an oral argument so that you could say, oh, well, I've been doing this for 20 years. I know how to give an oral argument. It's about specifically focusing in on your case and the things that you are likely to need to discuss uh, with the court about your case. So it's a, even for experienced lawyers, it's a very valuable tool to really get into, you know, the nooks and crannies of your of your particular case. I think the most important thing to me as far as mooting goes is you get a view that is similar to the judge's view so when we do it we'll have you know our appellate partners who have their own um, years of experience doing oral arguments and they're reading our briefs for the first time with no history of the case um, or you know leanings one way or the other so you it really helps point to things that you never might think of, which is exactly what a judge would do, who's reading it cold. Um, so it's nice to get that different perspective, especially when you're using more than one or two people mocking the, um, or mooting the oral argument. Um, you get such different perspectives, which is very helpful. Yeah. And, and Dwayne, um, you mentioned the, the, the fact that, um, it's really not about, I've been doing oral arguments for 20 years. I don't need this. Um, Gary Sasso, our CEO and one of the best appellate advocates I've ever had the, the pleasure to work with, um, and a former law clerk for Justice Byron White on the U.S. Supreme Court years ago, um, has repeatedly said that he would never consider doing an oral argument without mooting the argument at least a couple of times. Uh, and I know he really believes that because I've mooted a number of his arguments. Uh, so it, it, you're right. It's not about how long you've been doing these. It's about really getting to the critical aspects of your appeal. So now internally at your firm for, for cases that you are handling as the, as the uh, appellate lawyers, how often do you moot your own cases? Is this something that's done pretty standard or is it a, is it a case by case decision, a lawyer by lawyer decision? I think it's a lawyer by lawyer decision uh, and a case by case decision on, on someone's particular preferences. I've mooted every oral argument I've done in one form or another, whether it's just having one or two people read the briefs and discussing it or doing a formal moot, it just makes me feel much more comfortable to have had a cold set of eyes go through the issues with me. And I've always taken something from that. So I've mooted every single one um, just at different levels, depending on the type of case, what it can call for, the nature of the issues and things like that. It seems to me to be invaluable. 
Now, how do you find, are, are clients receptive to these costs? I mean, clearly it depends somewhat on the client and somewhat on the case, but are clients generally receptive to the costs of doing these sorts of things? And what, when you recruit others to help, do they build time to the file too? Or is this something that's more of a an internal cost? Well, I think the response to that is um, pretty much the same as um, Christine's response to your last question. It it depends. Um, some Some clients are very reluctant to take on those additional costs that might be involved if um, other lawyers in the firm were participating in the moot. But I think um, our experience has been that, in general, if the case is important enough to the client um, and the client is a sophisticated client, and by that I mean somebody who is involved in appeals on a more or less regular basis, um, they understand uh, the importance of moots. Um, I know Ford Motor Company insisted on moots. Um, and, and in their larger cases, they would insist that you go to their headquarters in Michigan um, and actually moot the case before um, a group of their in-house counsel. Um, I actually mooted a couple cases um, there that involved their general counsel as well as several of his assistants. Uh, but there are other cases where the costs um, are something the client just doesn't want to bear. Uh, and we have been known internally to to um, help each other out and just pitch in uh, recognizing that um, we're not going to get reimbursed for our time. Yeah, I think that happens quite a bit. I have a pro bono argument coming up and that's going to happen. And and um, we've all been very good about helping each other out like that, which is invaluable. I try to build in a moot into the budget um, at the beginning so the client is already aware of it and discuss with them the benefits of it. And even in smaller cases, they seem to be very receptive. Um, so that's been good. But in cases where either the, the case just can't justify it, we internally have just sort of helped each other out like that. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And my partners now, I don't have a lot of partners who practice appellate law, you know, or certainly not with the degree that I do. But I find that your partners are generally willing to help. Uh, even if they're, you know, if they're going to be able to bill their time, that's a bonus. <laughs> and if they can't, they're still usually willing to help. I mean, it's generally we, we get interesting issues. And I think your partners, uh, especially, you know, maybe non-appellate partners are kind of interested in the process and interested in, in, in seeing how, what you do, you know? So I never seem to have an issue finding people who are willing to come, you know, to come listen and to participate, but it's, it's always nice to get paid, but <laughs> that doesn't always happen, right? <laughs> no, it sure doesn't, unfortunately. So when you do an internal uh, moot like that, what what's, I mean, is there a typical way you set this up? How how many judges do you like to use? We generally use um, at least two or three lawyers for the moot. Um, uh, sometimes more, but usually usually three is the ideal number for us. 
Um, and, and, um, you know, as Chrissy said, we do it on a regular basis. We, we move virtually all of our pro bono appeals. Um, so that'll give you some idea how important we think it is. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at www.courtsurety.com or toll free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. I suggest you take an opportunity right now, add CSBA's contact information to your own contact list so that you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency, but they're very involved in the local Florida appellate community. In fact, CSBA is a global sponsor of the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar. If you want to learn more about supersedious bonds, check out Episode 9 of this podcast, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious, and the in-depth discussion with CSBA President Dan Huckabay. Next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. How long is a typical session? I mean, we know that generally we get 20 minutes or so. Do you time these things out to 20 minutes to give the advocates some feel for the time? Do you do you set them longer? Do you run over? What's your feeling on on you know, how long you spend on a, on a mock OA session? I think the average is one to two hours um, in my experience. Um, I usually try to set it for two and it'll typically take between one, one and a half or two, just depending on the issues in the case. Sometimes less, you know, if it's a smaller case with only one or two issues. Um, it, so it So it does vary, but I'd say on average, one to two hours. Um, I typically just do one session. I know others do more than that. Of course, in big, I've done one where I did six moots because that's what the client wanted and the nature of the case called for it. Um, but for the most part, I just do one. And then if we need follow up to do two, I think Peter, is your experience the same? Um, yeah, I, 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 I become concerned about staleness. Um, at some point, uh, I think two is okay. Um, but, um, I think more than two, you really start to worry about, well, losing your edge. Um, and let me say when Chrissy said, when Chrissy says two hours, um, keep in mind that, that, um, that's almost never the, the, the lawyer on her feet arguing for that whole time. A major portion of the moots we do consists of the feedback from the members of the panel. Uh, and and um, in my mind, at least, that's at least as important as um, the actual practice in terms of advocacy. Yeah, I agree with that. We, we um, I think most of the time is spent is is discussing strategy 
how you would answer hard questions, how to organize the argument um, in response to what the other side may say if you're the appellee or how you want to come out of the box if you're the appellant. Uh, that, to me, is, is the most valuable part of the moot um, to get that feedback. And, Dwayne, some, some, some of our lawyers, uh, when they're doing this, um, pre- prefer to do a run-through first without questions um, and, and then to go back and do it with questions. Others prefer just to jump right in uh, and treat it as the real deal. Uh, and I think it just depends on on the individual lawyer. So now, generally, when you're doing this, are you giving feedback after each question, or are you running for a certain period of time to get some sort of flow, and then sort of stopping and debriefing, or or is it a little bit of both? I think, as a rule, we wait and do it after the the actual argument portion is finished. Um, we'll take notes, um, and, and then uh, at the conclusion, the, the judges will take turns um, providing um, the advocate with their thoughts and um, suggestions for how potentially to improve the, the oral presentation. Now, if you just do one session or or in relation to the last session, what's your thoughts on how close to the actual oral argument date do you do your last uh, moot? I think as a rule of thumb, it's generally a week to 10 days out. Um, That way you have plenty of time to react to the feedback that you get. Uh, Maybe circle back with your moot judges with any concerns they have to see if you've come up with answers that would have been satisfactory to them, you know, with the issues that they had. Uh, So I wouldn't think, I think a week out doing it any sooner than that, you you may run into some problems with timing, you know, being able to get prepared in time. Yeah. uh, um, If the case belongs to me and I'm the one who's going to do the argument, I really don't want to do it any closer to the actual argument than a week. Um, I'm the kind of person who tries to get into, if you will, a warrior mode um, starting four or five days before the the actual argument, um, assuming it's a a large enough case. But I, I try to immerse myself for the last four or five days in the case. And so um, I want to have had the moot uh, about a week or so before. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that's, you know, fairly consistent with, with what I've seen uh, people do. Cause again, you never know what kind of feedback you're going to get and you may want to make some adjustments and then you want some time to, you know, let that settle in and, who knows? Maybe you want to run part of it by uh, one of your judges again before, but you know, before you do your argument, if it's something that you're adjusting. So that, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. Now, you guys have a pretty big stable of appellate lawyers to to pull from. 
uh, to act as your as your moot court judges. And who is your your ideal judge when you're when you're record, when you're recruiting volunteers for this? Um, what are you looking for? And do you limit yourself to to uh, appellate lawyers in the firm, or you use uh, trial lawyers? What about the trial lawyer, maybe who is involved in the case? How do you feel about that? I've always used our appellate um, partners and associates and, and our former judges like Judge Webster. Uh, so, you know, my ideal panel would be a former judge like Judge Webster um, and also some of my partners who give oral arguments all the time so they know what to, you know, they they, they can read the briefs and remember what they go through as they're getting ready for an argument or what a judge maybe has asked them before. So I find that more helpful. Um, I think that it's really helpful for the trial lawyer to be involved, um, depending on the case. Although I haven't had one serve as a judge, but that lawyer has always been there to give advice and, and, you know, they have their own questions that can come up. Um, but I, I typically try to stick with appellate practitioners just because of um, the experience they have um, with having hard questions thrown at them and what appellate judges look for, which is very different, obviously, than when you're in the trial court. Yeah, my my experience with um, using the lawyer who tried the case as a judge is that um, more often than not, it doesn't turn out well. Um, and, and I think the reason for that is that the lawyer who tried the case remembers it in a certain way, which isn't always consistent with what the record reflects. Um, and, and so, um, he or she will, will think things are maybe important that really for one reason or another, um, aren't going to be terribly helpful. Um, and, and you also have the problem that, that trial advocacy and appellate advocacy are, are different. They're just different. Uh, I do, I do a fair amount of trial work, um, although I do mostly appellate work and there are just different skills involved. And so, um, a good trial lawyer, well, some of the best trial lawyers I've known, um, did not make good appellate lawyers. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And I think that's, you know, it's sort of the bread and butter of what we do as appellate lawyers is that, that the skill set is different and the mindset is different. And we spend so much time as appellate lawyers trying to get in the heads of appellate judges uh, so that we are in that mindset that I, I definitely think, you know, appellate lawyers are your best audience for this. And, and definitely that the trial lawyer may be too personally invested <laughs> to, to be a uh, real objective at a moot. But, uh, but Peter, I'm assuming because of your background, you, you must be one of the most requested uh, Carlton Fields lawyers for moot courts, right? Because of your, uh, your experience on the bench, I'm sure is, is invaluable uh, to lawyers who are, who are doing this. Uh, in the nine years that I've been off the bench. I've done a, a lot of moots, 
um, internally and externally. Um, and, and I've been fortunate to have, um, in particular, uh, people outside the firm who, who are not only willing but eager um, to have me do that and to pay me um, actually fairly well to do it. Um, so I'm thankful for that. Well, and that's a good segue to talk about. I know that Carlton Fields now has uh, a program. Uh, I think you call it a pellet edge, right? Where you are essentially offering your services uh, to outside attorneys to assist them in a moot court uh, process. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we we developed this appellate edge um, as as because we see the benefit of moots in our own practice, um, and especially with Peter's experience being hired you know, in a case that we haven't handled, it, it demonstrates the, um, the, uh, helpfulness of doing it for, for others that are getting ready for, for arguments. And so, um, what we developed is a program that where we will moot the cases for other lawyers, like you say, um, and it can be any kind. I mean, we're, we're not limited to the kinds that we do big, small. It's just when someone wants a case mooted by experienced appellate practitioners and former judges, um, we have a system set up where we can do it electronically, um, via video. And we actually had this set up before the pandemic, um, and zoom became so popular, but it's even easier now that technology has advanced over the last few months to be able to do it. Um, where the you know you have your panel of judges sitting there in front of you while you're standing there doing the argument. Um, so it, it is a service that we we've begun to provide, uh, or we have actually been providing it for years, and now we've we've organized it into an actual program. So, who are the typical clients of the firm for this? Is it is it just um, any lawyers? Does it tend to be more smaller firm lawyers or? Or, or is there a typical client? Maybe there isn't. I don't think there's a typical client. I, uh, you know, this is a fairly new program, and so what we've seen is it's more, it, it's bigger cases. Um, you know, when Peter would get involved in um, the cases, Peter would get involved in are very large cases, typically where they would want him to come do it in person, and um, but we're not limited to the kind that we do. We'll do any kind of case. I think right now a typical case would be the typical kinds of cases we're arguing for our own clients. Um, and, but certainly we're not limited to any kind. And the way we set up our program is we actually have tiers, like we have four tiers and it depends on the type of case with four being tier four being sort of a bet the company case uh, with, or really tricky issues and tier one being, a very basic case um, that doesn't involve extensive briefing or a lot of issues. And so it'll, how we would set it up will vary depending on that kind of case. So whoever comes to us and wants us to help them with that, there's those kinds of options um, depending on the type of case. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. And that makes sense because there's such a wide range of, of cases that we can be dealing with and, and amounts at issue and that sort of thing. Um, without, without delving into the real specifics of it, is this something that 
you do as a as a pre-negotiated flat rate or how is the how is the billing for something like that it's something that we discuss with the people that um want to retain us to do it i think our our standard practice is a flat fee um and that's why we have the tier one tier two tier three tier four and 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 that way you know ahead of time who you're getting involved what what will be involved what the expectations are and so the pricing lends itself more easily to a flat fee and that way those that want us to do this for them know exactly what they're getting and aren't going to be surprised um you know at the end yeah and i i found that that um when we quote a flat fee for um this sort of thing potential client feels more comfortable because they know up front um what it's going to cost uh and there aren't any surprises in terms of unexpectedly large uh bills down the line you know a lot of times um people who aren't terribly familiar with appellate work don't understand how much effort goes into getting ready for to move a case like this. Um, I, I try to do it exactly the way I did it when I was on the bench. Um, and, and it, it takes, um, you know, eight or 10 hours to get as a rule in any case of any significance, uh, to get up to speed. Yeah, definitely. I think that the, you know, the, the quality, um, uh, of the preparation of the moot court judges is directly uh, related to the, the quality of the experience, right? If you if you don't have uh, a hot bench that is asking, you know, relevant and likely questions, the moot court experience is not nearly as valuable as when you have participants who are, you know, really who are into the issues, fully understand the issues and are asking, you know, the kinds of questions that you're going to get. Yeah, it's not a terribly helpful um activity if if the if the judges and I use judges in quotes sure. if the judges are really not up to speed, you're not you're just not gonna get the full benefit out of the out of the process. Now, I know that you all obviously cover Florida state courts, all the DCAs. Um are you uh Offering services for federal cases to Eleventh Circuit. Oh, absolutely. We we actually we have a national appellate practice. Um, although you typically think of Carlton Fields appellate practice as Florida, but we definitely moot Eleventh Circuit or or any federal circuit, and we've mooted cases in other states as well. Um, so yeah, we we basically will do any kind of appellate proceeding in state or federal court. And I I actually. Um mooted uh an 11th circuit appeal um right after um the pandemic broke out um and the lawyer who was going to be arguing the case a big case the lawyer who was going to be arguing the case um wanted to moot it um we we had it set up to do by video but when he learned uh, that the 11th Circuit was going to do the argument 
by telephone, um, he asked that we do it by phone, and we did that. So he had one of the first phone oral arguments in the 11th Circuit, and um, we mooted that uh, about a week before he he did the argument. The telephonic argument, you know, as much as Zoom is not a replacement for being in person, uh, I do think it adds some elements that are not there on a telephonic argument. I've, I've listened to some of those and I, I do think it, it, it misses something, but, but that's a good point that, you know, prior to the pandemic, if you were doing a moot practice by video conference, you might not feel like you were getting, you know, exactly the same experience, even though, you know, for cost reasons and whatever, it may make a lot of sense, but, but now uh, obviously doing, doing the moots by video or by phone, uh, that's just preparation, right? Because uh, although we've been doing this for a couple months now, and the appellate courts have done a great job of really not missing a beat in this regard, uh, to some extent, this is new for all of us, doing things on video and doing things by phone, and maybe it'll become more common. But but for now, I think we we all are a little bit off our game, maybe. Well, and, and doing moots either by Zoom or or by telephone, depending on which court it is, um, helps you with the technical aspects as well um, and, and helps you to avoid those little unfortunate glitches that can occur uh, if you've not practiced it in advance. <laughs> now, the audience won't know that we had some technical glitches before <laughs> the podcast that made it somewhat uh, <laughs> difficult to start. But that—that that is the thing about technology. Uh, you know, um, even though you understand how the software works, sometimes the way it interacts with the hardware, all those things are, are, are great things to practice and just get used to. What are you looking at in the Zoom uh, screen and that sort of thing? It's, um, oh, I can see that would be super helpful. What's helpful, too, with with doing it the technological way that we had come up with and now is obviously common is that you can record it. So for the benefit either of the client or for yourself to go back, um, you know, you could have the entire moot recorded so you could remember and practice again and all of that. Yeah, no, that's a great, I was going to mention that, that I, you know, I guess this way the, the client has the option of either logging into the Zoom and, and watching it that way or watching it recorded. Um, it certainly does. Um, you know, I think that that's a great, can be very educational for the client. Um, some clients probably, some of my clients wouldn't care and don't care to watch, but some of them do. And if they have that option, um, that's just another side benefit of the technology. Right. Uh, if people want to get a hold of uh, you two, uh, your firm, in order to set up something like this, what's the, how do they start the process? Well, I think I'm technically the one who's in charge of of the program, so they would reach out to me, um, and we would talk about what their goals are and what kind of judges they want, and then we would we would set it up from there. Um, obviously they could reach out to anyone in our practice group. Um, we just, as the point person, I was designated that person for better or worse, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, we, we can always get to any of us through any of our appellate practice members. You probably weren't at a meeting some, at some point and got volunteered to be in charge, right? <laughs> That's how that usually goes. <laughs> 
Well, thank you both for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I think uh, it will give give folks some things to think about. I think, you know, mooting is uh, is important. It's always been important. I think it might be even more important right now uh, for, for everybody, for all cases to think about because we, like you said, uh, Peter, you know, practice makes perfect and we certainly want to be as perfect as we can for our clients. And so, but really, thank you both very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Dwayne. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks to Peter Webster and Christine Davis for being on the podcast. Their biographies and contact information are in the show notes. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer that needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is also in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your clients' appellate bond needs. Their contact information, always in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. The next episode will release in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.